Hi, Dr. Maha. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you. Finally, we've been trying to do this in different parts of the world, New York, London, and finally we get around to doing this in Dubai. So welcome to Network Capital. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to connect. Um, in this podcast, we try and understand why leaders do what they do. And uh, let's get started by trying to understand what you do and why you do it. Great. So I'm actually a professor and a consultant based at NYU's graduate program in international relations. I focus on global risk. That means uh, the threats to our stability, what could go wrong and what can we do to prepare uh, to tackle these risks. I teach this, I research this, but I also help governments shape their foreign policy by consulting with them. And I've recently written a book about this topic called Future World Order which I spoke about uh, just last week at uh, the European Parliament and shared these ideas with uh, members of the European Commission and other government leaders from around the world. Uh, so what are these ideas? Uh, we should read your book, of well, course. Well, <laughs> yes, I'd love for you to read my book, no pressure. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, uh, the basic thesis of my research and of this book, Future World Order, is that today we are at a very sensitive global turning point. Uh, what I describe is a global legitimacy crisis. And it, it, it encompasses four different areas. First of all, it's important to recognize that we're, we're, we're really at a turning point geopolitically. We have seen a challenge to the status quo. This is not the post-Cold War era led by the US. This is not a US-led international community that's guiding the world. Uh, and then the question that we will be debating for the next few years is, if it's not a U.S.-led world order, who is in charge? Is it a U.S.-China dynamic now that's shaping our world affairs? It is, is, it, is it an era of multipolarity? There are a lot of different ways to think about it, but the truth is we won't have a consensus on this issue in the near term, which adds to our overall risk, our instability in the world. Doesn't that make you anxious? It does. It does make me anxious. Uh, you know, whereas previously we had a U.S.-led international community that offered us a sense of global, shared global values, things like democracy, human rights, that in theory all of us were supposed to promote or work towards we don't have that anymore. We have a crisis of global leadership and related to that, a crisis of global values. This is a very sensitive time and more of us have to recognize uh, what is happening. In the meantime, of course, we've seen uh, more leaders take advantage of the lack of global leadership uh, and, and that is also a concern. There's uh, That keeps coming back on your, in your book, right? One major security threat that you're seeing is a lack of leadership. Yes, exactly. Global leadership. How will, uh, how will we tackle climate change when the U.S. is not part of the climate accords um, and we don't have unity amongst a lot of these superpowers? This is a concern. Uh, related to that, we also see a turning point politically, whereas previously we, we were all supposed to gravitate towards democracy. Uh, now we see a crisis of not just democracy, but also dictatorship. In every part of the world, citizens are challenging the political status quo. And it, didn't, it, it maybe began with the Arab Spring countries, but the truth is, if you look at recent years, there have been citizen-led movements challenging leadership, challenging the legitimacy of political systems in every region. Um, an example, Brazil. It was a citizen-led movement that brought down 
uh, Rousseff in that country because of corruption, issue, perceived corruption. That also happened all the way on the other side of the world in South Korea um, in terms of the leadership there and corruption issues all across Europe, a lot of citizen-led movements against austerity policy. And of course, you're aware of the protests that recur against President Trump in the U.S. and so forth. There are so many examples of citizens who are frustrated with the current status quo. And this has led to a larger debate about whether democracy is the best system. Again, this is not a U.S.-led world order where democracy is necessarily being promoted. And uh, the big question is, if, if not democracy, what, what else is there? What's next? Uh, so what is the next phase of our political development? Uh, from my perspective and what I've considered in the book is that any future political system will have to take into account that citizens are more activists, they are more informed, even with fake news, because of tech, because of social media. And governments need to catch up with that and integrate tech more into their uh, system so they are able to respond to our needs more actively. Um, so I, I think for those of you who are listening, it's important to reflect on is democracy the best system for you or is there something better? Is there another phase or stage in our political development? Uh, because all the theorists, the experts who said democracy was the best system, uh, they are also recognizing that there is a need to think ahead, think beyond this. What do you think it might look like? I think at the very least, uh, we will have to see more, uh, uh, as I said, tech uh, being used by government, leveraged by government to engage with citizens more. But the citizens don't seem to trust the government. That's, that that's is, emerging as a yeah. large trend globally. I think one of the, one of the points I, I always come back to is we need to reflect in our individual countries about what do we expect of our governments and what do they expect of us? There will be a need to redesign the social contract to reflect the changing nature of our, our tech-driven society. Until we do that, I think we're still going to have a lot of these challenges to the status quo. Um, I also feel, and not everyone agrees with me on this point, but in the future, I think we're going to have to have um, a place for tech leaders to... Uh, to perhaps help shape policies uh, at, at the government level because they are most in tune with how our society, how our politics and how our economics are going to evolve given this this tech cloud that, that uh, overshadows all of our lives. Right. Thirdly, I would say the, uh, uh, the next point that uh, that is important to remember is that there's also a challenge to the status quo economically, right? Uh, we all are aware of globalization. Since 1999, there has been a recurring citizen-led movement concerned about the inequality that has increased due to globalization. The problem is now that there's also a state-level voice, populist economic nationalists, who say that globalization is not the best system. So we don't have consensus about the economic, our global economy. If you throw in the looming cloud of automation, I think that makes it much more difficult as well. Many of us, and according to some studies, 40% of us globally will lose our jobs to robots in the next 10 years. The question is, what do we do next? Are our governments prepared uh, uh, to help us in that uneasy transition from, from our current jobs to new types of jobs that we will have to consider 
given automation. Uh, and I think, again, I, I don't feel that governments are really in a position to tackle it right now because there's so many other immediate term risks. Uh, and lastly, the, the fourth part of our global legitimacy crisis has to do with society and the fact that uh, there is a crisis of identity in most countries where you see that there is a rise in xenophobia, there's a, res uh, a resurgence in nationalism that excludes the other. And I, I describe it as a global identity crisis. Are we globalists or are we nationalists? I think at a certain point we will have to have that uh, question answered. Can we be both? Ideally, we should be both. But at the moment, it feels as though we have to pick sides. Even President Trump at the UN said the future is for the nationalist. If you're a globalist, you're going to lose. Uh, and I think the reality is there are many world leaders who echo his rhetoric. It's not just him. So as individual citizens of our countries, we need to answer the question of what does it mean to be a citizen of our country uh, are we nationalists? Are we globalists? Do we want to accept the other, the refugee, the migrant? Because this trend of xenophobia is now emanating from the state level. It's infusing a lot of policies. Uh, I, I remember reading a few months back a Danish, I, I believe it was the immigration uh, minister of Denmark, that uh, uh, publicly said that we don't want any migrants, any refugees coming to our country. If they come to our country, they will be sent to an island that we use for contagious animals where we test on those animals. So there's a, there's a, a sadly, a, a strong rhetoric of xenophobia that even emanates from our elected leaders. I think the only solution will be for citizens to redefine what it is to, to be part of our individual countries. And these and movements are a part of it. Exactly. And if you also look around the world, we've seen extremism evolve. Whereas 10 years ago, we were only concerned about Al-Qaeda and Islamist extremism. Now we see, sadly, that extremism has evolved into Buddhist extremism, fire and extremism, Hindu extremism, and so forth. And it's across the board. It's in every country. Uh, there is no counter-narrative, sadly, to this hate, to this xenophobia, to this extremist rhetoric. And, and again, uh, it boils down to a global identity crisis. What does it mean to be a citizen of your country? Uh, what are our shared global values, if any, today? We are really at a sensitive turning point, and I would really urge all of you to reflect on these key questions, these key issues, as you navigate the coming yeah. years. I mean, these are issues not just for activists and politicians and tech leaders. These are issues for each and every person. So you're a professor at NYU. Um, has any student ever asked you the difference between an, a nationalist and a patriot? And can one be both? Right. I, I have uh, come across that, including in my, uh, you know, my recent book tour, when I get Q&A after speeches. Congratulations, by the way, on so many honors. <laughs> thank yeah. you, thank you. Uh, I think that's a tough question. Uh, somebody might be patriotic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are uh, not accepting of the other. I, I think each of us will have to decide that for ourselves. But the global trend appears to be that if you're a patriot, if you're a nationalist, then you don't want people of other religions, other ethnicities to be part of your community. That seems so to be the trend. Let me, let me see if you agree with this or not. Um, 
patriotism equal to i love my country right nationalism equal to i only love my country and i love my country despite everything do you agree with that i i think i would agree and and i guess at the moment we probably have more nationalists than patriots because there's nothing right? wrong in being a patriot you of can course. be a patriot of your own there's nothing wrong in loving one's own country yeah um and also being uh, you know like we're thinking of the world at large like you can't say solve climate change or nuclear war or technological disruption right. uh sitting in your drawing room right like you do have to collaborate with uh, with different kinds of people and right. one author who would agree with you huh. uh, is uh, Elif Shafak who says that why yes. should we choose between two suboptimal choices these are fake choices let's right. try and be both So, exactly. Uh, I want to basically understand in your classroom what subjects you teach and how are your students dealing with it. Uh, so I actually work with graduate students. So they tend to be in their twenties. Uh, they are all. They have a bachelor's degree. They have yeah. They've done their B their BA. Uh, a lot of them would like to work in the UN or with nonprofits or with <coughs> government. I have come away feeling that they are uh, perhaps looking for answers, right? Because. uh this is really a, like i said a very sensitive turning point how do we make sense of all of these trends all of these changes that are happening um and i do feel a, a sense of kind of uh concern that where do we fit into this this confusing uh global they, backdrop they, uh, it's nyu so i'm assuming that they would be americans but also many other nationalities you know i, I do have a few americans but it is quite a global cl- cohort of of students uh, a lot uh, many from china in fact uh, europe latin america have the radio book future world <laughs> there's no pressure for them to buy it of course but i do uh, teach a lot of the ideas that i've shared with you with them in my course so tell me what to like do you see um, young people think very similarly or are there different strands of thought amongst your students who come from different countries to be honest generally i feel that regardless of their national identity wherever they're from whatever their citizenship is their concern is you know where do i fit in in the global economy will i get a job will i get a job they're, will a robot yeah, take over my exactly. job yeah exactly i think that's the larger issue um and i think uh, although they are concerned about the political changes this crisis of democracy the underlying concern is how will i get a job where will i fit into this this sort of evolving tech economy yeah uh, and i don't think necessarily the question needs to be phrased that is a robot coming for your job i think will automation take away some jobs sure yeah but it might create different kinds of jobs and i Not sure if the governments are thinking about how to prepare citizens and students exactly towards that end. Um, again, I mean, most governments are most political leaders have local legitimacy crises, right? They're struggling to stay in power. There's a looming economic crisis and so forth. I don't think there's been enough uh, consideration of of this fact. And what will we do with those people who have to find new jobs? There is a uh, an economist at SOAS, and I've referenced him in my book. Guy Standing, who's talked a lot about this issue, uh, about a new emergent social class who've been left behind by globalization, but there's potential for there for there to be more people like that, but who are left behind because of this automation unemployment, uh, and he terms it precariats. They're people who have 
lost their or never had an occupational identity. And they're sort of just jumping from one temporary job to another. Uh, and it's a concern. If, if uh, you know, A lot of studies talk about 40% of jobs in retail, transport, the food industry, that they will be gone within the next five years in the U.S., for instance. Uh, what will happen to so them? So a lot of techno-optimists will argue argue with you that those are terrible jobs. Nobody should have those jobs. And uh, it's better if people spend their creative pursuits doing what they truly care about. Now, with UBI, for example, not saying that you need to be a fan of UBI or otherwise, but let's say universal basic services. If everybody's compensation is sort of taken care of, then nobody should anyway be putting his or her life in danger by going to a mine, a risky job, or taking up a really dull job being you know a receptionist and taking calls right. all day um, those jobs should anyway be automated so this is good let these people actually find meaningful opportunities the challenge is that uh, we should actually uh, encourage people to be able to match their passion with the purpose but with this leadership crisis that's happening nobody's talking about it I agree with you that ideally your work should be connected to your passion, your purpose, etc. But it's not so straightforward. What if somebody in their mid-40s loses their jobs? Yeah. Loses their job. And uh, every, all jobs are only in AI. Or yeah, uh, yeah. How do you suddenly, at that phase in your life, uh, train yourself to be in this new type of it's job? It's very difficult. Like Harari asked this question a lot. That I suppose mm-hmm. a 50-year-old truck driver loses his or her job. Um, you can't ask them to become a developer tomorrow and join a tech company. Exactly. It's, it's very difficult. It's I mean, it's possible, difficult. but it's not yes. probable. And I, I think we don't have uh, enough discussion about this issue at the policy level and even the, the, the emotional side of it, the psychological aspect, right? Mm-hmm. If you lose your job, there's a certain psychological toll, right? The, oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and I think uh, uh, there needs to be more consideration about the psychological support that this group of people globally will lead if they have to lose their jobs and then navigate a new type of sector. It's a, it's a concern. Uh, no, no, I mean, I, 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 I'll go two levels extra and say that all of us will be fired multiple times in our lifetime. Yes. And that's okay. Yeah. It's just that it might not be okay for everybody. Exactly. It's easier said than done. Like, there will be some of us who will take getting fired the first time very harsh and may not be able to deal with it because it's such a stigma in many places. Exactly. Um, So just basically building that spiritual, strengthening one's spiritual resolve is so important. That's why I'm always curious about the role of a university. Do you think education today, especially universities, have become an insurance policy and nothing more? What do you mean by an insurance Like you go to a good university largely for an insurance. Like, you know, if I get fired, I'll probably get another job because Because I I graduated from school X. What are your thoughts being a university professor um, and having had a fairly multinational career? Do you agree with that? Have universities been reduced to insurance policy? I I don't know if... uh, I'm not sure if I would say it's an insurance policy. There are people who have gone to really, you know, big universities, brand name universities, and still have struggled in the last few years with the global economic crisis. There are no guarantees, and I'm not trying to worry anybody. Uh, But I think what I've learned in my work is that it's important to be able to adapt, right? Of course, get your degree, but be flexible, right? It's, It's the type of skills you have could potentially, you know, if you're focused on writing and analysis, 
there's a whole host of jobs you could do. Don't just be focused on think tank and doing yeah. research. Like you yourself have multiple careers. I right? have been very fortunate. Uh, although NYU is my home base, and I'm very committed to my students and the research I do, I've also uh, uh, realized that I also have to adapt. I also have to be open to teaching courses online, which I do with this education startup called Pioneer Academics. Uh, and learning a new skill, how do you teach online, how do you, you know, that's a different skill set than what I do in my classroom at NYU. But also the fact that uh, although I was, I did a PhD, I didn't realize that would be relevant to political risk consulting, which is what I've done for many years with Wikistrat, but it's all online. It's actually crowdsource consulting. Yeah. Uh, I never thought that that would be relevant to what I, what I was studying or to my degree. Uh, but you just have to adapt. And even uh, beyond this work, I've also, uh, my side project, which is also a passion project, mm -hmm. is my, uh, is my uh, comic book. So I always uh, dreamt of being a cartoonist. And uh, for many years, wow. I... A professor and a cartoonist <laughs> and an author. Right. Now, so, you are prepared for the future. <laughs> so I, I took a cartoon drawing class soon after I moved to New York a few years ago. And the teacher said, draw something about your life or about your interests. Well, I thought, okay, I'm a, Pakistan, a proud Pakistani patriot, but I've also grown up all over the world. So let me... So you're British-Pakistani? Uh, a Pakistani-British? Pakistani-British, Yeah. yeah. And uh, but I grew up in seven countries by age only. fourteen. Yeah, only. <laughs> um, and so I, I drew a comic book that is about a global kid, which is the name of the of the comic. That and it teaches kids about politics, which is what I teach. And it was it's a really it's it's wonderful when you can come back to something from childhood that you were very passionate about and combine it with your you know your day job. And uh, it, it launched in twenty sixteen. And this year, it won its fourth and fifth award. And so I, I would certainly, I'm not a really an entrepreneur, but uh, it was nice to do something entrepreneurial that, that could continue for a few years. And now, um, and in fact, by the way, all the sales went to education nonprofits. Wonderful. It's currently, I reposted it on, republished it on Amazon, <clears throat> and all profits go to my late brother's memorial fund, the Ab Disease Fund, which goes to uh, Syrian refugee youth in uh, Jordan via charity, peace and sport. It's so powerful. So I've been really fortunate to, to work on different projects. And uh, at this phase, I, I feel all of us need to put our ego on the side, be, a, be able to adapt, be entrepreneurial if, if, if it's possible. And you can still have a career that's, that reflects you and your interests, but you may have to do things you didn't expect. Yeah. Right? So talk to me about your personal productivity. Like you're able to fit in a lot in 24 hours, yeah. like writing, teaching, uh, discussing with students, consulting. traveling for work, yeah. consulting. When do you, or what does an average day look like for you? Gosh, uh, I guess no two days are the same yeah. uh, because, uh, you know, I might have two days a week where I'm very committed to the academic side of me at NYU, but uh, then I may be having a day of meetings for the next phase of my comic book, which I'm uh, pursuing at the moment uh, more as a side business. Uh, so there's a follow-up coming? There is, in fact. So what I produced was for kids, and it was drawn by me, 
but I'm very much the amateur. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I'm very much the amateur. But when you took uh, the classes, you got so good that you actually yeah. decided to draw. I do, it, yeah. Wow. But it, I have to give uh, full credit to any artist who makes a career out of it because it's very hard to sit alone and produce work. So I, I do think that in this world where we have a crisis of global leadership uh, and a crisis of values, there there should be more opportunity for kids to be enlightened about what's happening and really uh, to think about global values. What is important to us? What is important to this upcoming generation? So one spinoff is for kids. It could be animation. It could be a comic book series. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, and the idea is it's maybe a superhero that's fighting for uh, global values in a world where we don't have any global values or any global leadership. So that's one avenue that I'm pursuing. The other spinoff is more near term. It's a spinoff for adults, a comic book or political graphic novel type of uh, trilogy where we look at the evolution or the future of certain sensitive groups. What is the plight of refugees today? And there's so many different examples of refugees all over the world now. Uh, what is their current situation and how could their life evolve? Uh, second, uh, The second uh, book would look at uh, the extremists. What is the future of extremism? As I mentioned earlier, it has really evolved in the last 10 years. What, who is the next type of recruit? Uh, and lastly, I think it would be very powerful to look at the youth today in this existing in this global legitimacy crisis, as I explained. Uh, what is their future in terms of the tech economy, in terms of the, the evolving political process? It could be very powerful and a great way to enlighten uh, people in a visual format. It can be much more accessible, though I would love for people to read my book and I'll continue to promote it as I've done the last few months. But there, there could be a way to access or reach a broader audience through this visual format, an adult audience. Which is why comics. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I have those two spinoffs uh, that, I'm, that I'm pursuing, pending a bit more funding, and I'm talking to creative partners because, as I said, I don't think I should be doing all the creative stuff. I, I, I need support. I also have a spinoff of my book, Future World Order. I think that... Yeah, you really should. I was always thinking there should yeah, be... There every to, month there's something new. This exactly. Maybe updated. this can be a continuum. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've taken a big picture approach, you know, looking at geopolitics, politics, economics and society. But what I feel more of us should be <clears throat> thinking about is the identity aspect. Within our societies, what are the, you know... Uh, what are the trends that are building? Are we having a crisis of identity? Are we globalists or are we nationalists? Uh, I really want to focus on this global identity crisis that I touch on in this first book, but that I want to explore. Because in my last, in the last few months as I've spoken on this book, everywhere from you know uh, universities to think tanks to book clubs, and to most European recently, Parliament. yeah, <laughs> European Parliament, I do feel that more people are asking me about this identity crisis because we all are, have been debating geopolitics and who's in charge for the last few years and we'll continue to do that. And we will keep debating, uh, we, we've been debating democracy and the failures of it and also the globalization. But don't uh, people ask you this, my identity or <coughs> X's identity, I am a techno-optimist millennial who believes in the free market whose identity is tied to the platforms I use. I care about, you know, hopefully making the world a better place through yeah. my action. And uh, politics is incidental. I Anyway, my vote counts so very little. So I might as well 
do great at what I'm doing and then uh, see what have you. So my identity is tied to my work and my community and uh, I don't necessarily care too much about what's going on. Do Politically, people, do you mean? Yeah. You don't care as much about No, I'm just politics. saying that when you say that there's a global identity crisis, so right. th- is there a, a section of people who associate more with, say, <coughs> techno-optimism and platforms and other things as opposed to, say, a nation or X or Y? So they might feel quite comfortable in this identity crisis, right? Because their identity is not tied to global politics at all. Agreed. I I think that's really a good point. I guess I'm thinking about identity more in terms of um, this rising xenophobia, right? This rising extremism that is brewing. And the xenophobia, as I said, it, it exists within society, but it also exists at the state level. You have political parties and politicians who are expressing hate that is as fearful as what some of these extremist groups are saying. Yeah. And I think that's where that is the uh, that is the area that I think we're not talking about enough. The counter narrative to the hate, the counter narrative to the xenophobia, and to these to the re- uh, counter narrative to uh, the, the the extremism. Because right now the voice of those groups perhaps feels stronger, at least from my perspective yeah. as a social scientist. So it's not necessarily just about national identity. I, I understood what you what you meant, but really what are our global values do we still care about um, the fact that there is the xenophobia or are we just you know do you uh, think we care I would like to think that we care but it's just you know in some ways some of the more specifically do your students care or do you think yes of course and we do spend a lot of because you know xenophobia is a risk to every country right in every region and we do think about what this means how it could evolve and what we can do to stop it. Can we leverage tech to crowdsource around the world amongst the youth what global values we should pursue or promote, right? Or how we can create a counter-narrative to hate. So uh, we do think about strategies as opposed to just identifying the problem. I think it is up to my, up to my students and that your generation, millennials, to come up with those strategies because at the moment... And again, in my interactions with people who are in their 40s, 50s, policymakers uh, around the world, when I've, when I've interacted with them, I don't feel like they have uh, any solutions. And it is very difficult, right? It's not tangible. The whole identity identity is not very tangible. It's hard to shape policy around it. Yeah. Um, but so you know, there's been uh, the final section of this podcast is going to be about... Uh, your career specifically in sure. IR career so a lot of people are very interested in building international relations or careers in international relations because look it's a fascinating subject it basically like in your book for example yeah. and in this podcast you've touched on so much <laughs> um, who should study IR right. and uh, what are viable career options for people who study IR today so the truth is you know uh it's really a how you leverage it. So I actually studied uh, international relations for my first degree at Brown University. Uh, I then went on Why to... Why did you study IR? I, because I grew up, like I said, I grew up all over the world. Uh, Pakistani with, you know, strong Pakistani roots, but I'm a global citizen, right? Born in Jordan, then lived up in six other countries. So for me, because it was... your parents were tra- traveling? Uh, uh, yeah, my father was a banker. I see. So it just it just uh, was a way for me to understand 
all the different places I had been to and just to understand their politics. I'd always been exposed to it, but never formally studied it. So it just seemed natural for me. So you followed your curiosity. Yeah, exactly. That's one advice we always give on network capital. Yes. Don't follow your passion, follow your curiosity. It will create passion. Exactly, exactly. And then... Uh, so brown four years. Brown four years, yeah. but then to be honest, I struggled to find a job in that space, you know, think tank or non-profit. I was very keen to be a journalist. I was active with my uh, college newspaper and uh, I had a Newsweek internship offer, unpaid, and a banking offer. So you can <laughs> guess what a full-time banking offer paid. Right, so right. you can guess what I chose. Uh, and being a daughter of a banker, a bit of pressure <laughs> to follow that path. And I was very grateful for the opportunity Credit Suisse took me on. You know, in those days, there were a lot of jobs in finance and uh, they were very excited to recruit somebody who was not the typical banker profile, you know, an IR uh, graduate who was focused on media. So I think they it was a positive... Uh, and did you enjoy yourself? I did. I loved the people. I just realized rather quickly that it was not the right fit for me. Uh, when did you realize that? Uh, I think after two years. Uh, that so you did your two years. You did, did your time. I did yeah. my time. Yeah. Made some good, you know, good chunk of change to pay for my master's, yeah. which I did at SIPA, Columbia's yeah. School of International Public Affairs. Yeah. I ended up doing a dual degree with SIPA and the LSC, double right. master's yeah. in international affairs and comparative politics because I understood the big picture of what the world is, but I was feeling, I, I, I was craving... Uh, more uh, understanding of individual countries. Right. Comparative politics made a lot of sense. And uh, and I just kind of fell into the PhD because after my dual master's, I realized, wait a minute, I still have a lot of questions. I don't know my opinions fully. I need to explore a bit further. So when you decided to go for your PhD, did you, was the question clear in your mind or were you exploring? I just felt that I needed to learn more. Something I didn't feel I was done with my education. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize what I was getting into. Uh, and I, I'm a big fan of the LSC and uh, I'm glad I did a PhD in retrospect because it really structured my thinking, which has allowed me to do so many different things. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that uh, uh, even academia has changed, right? The, the dream for most PhD students is to end up as a tenured professor and uh, you know just do research. But that has changed. Now you can do consulting, you can do, you can write. I, I started off with a Business Week column that I was blogging for a while for Huffington Post. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, different things you can yeah. do as an academic. But I really see myself as a social, social scientist because of my education, because of my risk-focused work. I look at the world in a certain way that allows me to see what's going wrong and yeah. what, how those risks could evolve. And... I feel it's my responsibility to share that as much as possible, especially with the younger generation, right. which is what led to the comic book, but also this book, right? It's for any type. You don't need to be uh, an IR scholar to read this book. It's for my mother. It's for my niece. It's for every age group. So we are all prepared that, uh, you know, we can only be prepared for what's coming if we recognize what these <coughs> risks are. Yeah. And they are serious risks. And uh, I think the era of looking to our world leaders for guidance or for solutions is is maybe over or at least for the time being it feels it's dwindling for sure definitely but yeah. the the result or the silver lining of all of these uh, these risks these this cri global crisis is that citizens are more engaged right uh, it's not just that greta 
yes, of Greta Sweden, Thunberg. who's become, there are, there there are, are so many examples, examples even in yeah. the US, you know, that Ocasio Cortez, yeah. who, who was a bartender, and then, you know, because of the, the congresswoman grilling, the exactly, top, you know, uh, and she would company. only have been there if she, if uh, she only decided to do this because she felt there was a gap in, yeah. in leadership. Yeah. So this is the silver lining. Citizens are more engaged and certain people are getting into politics that previously would not have done so. That is positive. Where are we headed? Uh, what is the best political system to cope with these risks uh, and the, uh, the evolving tech economy that imp- impacts all of us? That is a, a something we'll be debating for many years. Yeah. And we won't have consensus, and that, in effect, is the global legitimacy crisis. We don't have consensus as we used to uh, in the early years of the post-Cold War era. So that's behind us. What is the world order today? It's not U.S.-led, but what is it? Uh, we should be aware of that, but it's... And be participants in exactly, shaping Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so geopolitically, politically, economically, socially, we have uh, seen uh, uh, a challenge... To, the, to what was perhaps the status quo. And I think we need to be firstly aware of that and then recognize or have a discussion in our communities. What can we do? What should we, what should we expect of our governments? What, who, uh, what should we expect of, of our governments in terms of uh, political policy, but also in terms of economic policy and so forth? Um, I think that there needs to be more discussion. Uh, until we do that, we'll just be sort of in limbo. Yeah. Uh, or bystanders, which, exactly. which you can't really afford This to is be. the era of being more activist. And yeah. I think we've seen that already, but uh, more of us have to be involved and engaged. Engaged is the key word, I think. Exactly. Feel. Any parting also, advice to your listeners? Uh, <laughs> I would say that, again, in terms of uh, the future... you know, Let's split it into two parts. Okay. Advice on careers and advice about thinking of the new okay. world order. So, in terms of career, I would strongly encourage you to be as flexible as possible. Recognize that new opportunities are coming up that perhaps we were not even aware of. Like mm-hmm. crowdsource consulting, I'd never th- I even heard of it. Uh, but it, it, it fell into my lap and... Uh, uh, you just have to adapt and see how your skills will fit into different types of contexts. Right. Uh, don't let your childhood passions, uh, you know, hold on to those childhood passions and revisit them, as I did with my comic book. Uh, and it can be a wonderful, wonderful experience yep. uh, to uh, to come back to. Um, but yeah, just uh, be flexible. Wonderful. Um, be flexible on careers and the world order. Parting advice. Uh, world order, I would say, please be more informed. Recognize that this is a sensitive turning point in our development geopolitically, politically, economically, and socially. And ask, your, ask yourselves, uh, if the U.S. is not in charge, who is or who should be? Uh, Politically, is democracy still the best system or is there something better? Economically, is globalization going to withstand populism and automation? And lastly, are you a globalist or a nationalist or can you be both? Uh, Because I think these are the questions that really will plague us in the next, uh, probably the next decade. And... uh, yeah, that's yeah. my advice. <laughs> that is it's truly been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. 
and uh, we look forward to the new book and Thank the you. new set of comic books. I I was really happy to speak with you and do check out my website futureworldorder.org and and please reach out to me if anybody has any Absolutely. follow-up questions uh at, at NYU you're welcome to reach out. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you.